Okay, it's a long, hot day, but we've got one more good panel to go. And this is about the environmental challenges for Arctic development. Um, we have three panel members, and uh, then we'll have some questions afterwards. The first of our panel members is Brendan Kelly. He's uh, Deputy Director of the Arctic Sciences Division at the National Science Foundation. And he studied sea ice ecosystems, certainly something uh, very important as we think about development in the Chukchi and, and further north. And so without further ado, Brendan. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm going to kind of focus my remarks today on the marine ecosystem uh, in the interest of time. Um, certainly as, as oil and gas and other industries look to the Arctic Ocean, um, I, I would argue that we're going to need a better uh, knowledge of the ecosystems there uh, to be able to engage uh, environmental threats. Um, earlier today, Pete Schlaby uh, correctly pointed out that there is, in fact, uh, a considerable body of knowledge of Arctic ecosystems. Um, on the other hand, um, Mead Treadwell pointed out that it, it's a new ocean, and I think, I think that concept's important, the newness to, of it, and I'll come back to that. Um, certainly, I think uh, the regulatory agencies, uh, by and large, would argue that they don't have sufficient uh, knowledge of the ecosystem uh, to uh, complete the tasks that are asked of them. Uh, if we were to contrast uh, what was known uh, about the environments, the ecosystems of the Gulf of Alaska before the Exxon Valdez oil spill with what we know about the Arctic Ocean, I think anybody familiar with the case would, would argue that uh, in fact, we're not, uh, we're not where we'd like to be in terms of our understanding of those ecosystems in the Arctic. Um, and in fact, uh, as, as Fran Ulmer just pointed out in, in the, Gulf, or the, uh, yeah, the Gulf oil spill uh, report, it, it specifically pointed to the need in the Arctic of a comprehensive uh, research program to provide a foundation uh, of scientific knowledge. So, I think that's not unfair to say that the foundation isn't as solid as we would like it to be. So, so what are the challenges of, of uh, collecting this kind of information, getting this kind of knowledge about uh, the Arctic marine ecosystem? Well, certainly the remoteness of the region presents a challenge. The cold and the dark presents a challenge. The lack of, of uh, infrastructure presents some challenges. And certainly the rate of environmental change, the very rapid environmental change that's happening there uh, is, is a great challenge. Uh, I would also suggest that uh, a theme that keeps coming up today, that uh, we can and, and I think are doing better at coordinating um, research among multiple agencies and nations. Um, but again, to come back to Mead's comment that it, it is a new ocean, um, this is an extraordinary period of, of rapid environmental change in the, in the Arctic. Uh, so the, um, in, in that sense, I think it's a new place and or, um, really calls for, for new uh, and better ecosystem studies. Well, despite the extreme uh, climate, uh, organisms have adapted to the sea ice environment with polar bears being a top predator uh, and, in fact, an iconic symbol. Um, but the polar bear is actually, uh, in, at least in evolutionary terms, a, a recent immigrant uh, that is a, 
become adapted to this environment um, to take advantage of, of abundant prey, um, mainly in the form of ring seals. Ring seals give birth and, and nurse their young in snow caves that they excavate above breathing holes they maintain in the ice. So note that rearing young uh, for these seals uh, requires um, persistent cold and snow cover. Well, a well-dressed researcher can, can deal with the cold, but the observing part, the observing these animals, uh, is difficult because they're hidden under the snow and the ice. So when a, when a ring seal dives from her snow cave under the ice, she can search for food uh, for as long as, as her oxygen supply uh, will hold up. But then she has to return to the surface and breathe uh, under the snow um, or come out of the water inside of, of her snow cave. Thus the diving, the foraging, and the rearing of young in these animals are all hidden uh, under snow and ice. Well, again, even the well-dressed researcher uh, needs some equipment, uh, some infrastructure, uh, to learn about uh, this and other important components uh, of the ecosystem. Some of the best infrastructure uh, remains that developed by the indigenous people uh, of the Arctic, such as this Inuit man in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, he's using his dog to find where one of these seal holes is hidden under the snow. Uh, and that will allow him to uh, harvest the seal, providing meat and fuel for his, uh, his family. Well, we've been able to couple this uh, trick of using uh, dogs, seal-sniffing dogs, uh, with satellite-borne microwave sensors uh, to investigate the snow cover uh, available to ring seals throughout the Arctic. Uh, we know that as the Arctic warms, uh, the ice is diminishing. Um, but snow cover is also diminishing. Well, thanks to the seal-sniffing dogs, uh, we know what the impact is on seals, increased mortality of, of the pups due to extreme conditions and predation. Uh, thanks to the microwave satellites, uh, we know the extent of the coming changes. So here in these two panels, I'm contrasting the most recent decade in terms of snow cover in the Arctic with uh, our model forecasts for the end of the century. Um, and the color code here is showing you average depths of snow cover uh, with into the reds being the deeper snow. So somewhere in the 25 to 30 centimeter range is sort of the critical depth necessary for seals to rear their young under the snow. And you can see that the amount of area covered by that is going to diminish substantially over the course of the, uh, of the century. And in fact, by the end of the century, we predict that ring seals uh, now circumpolar distribution will likely have contracted to around the northern part of the Canadian archipelago in Greenland, the same area, by the way, that's predicted to be the last refuge of polar bears. Um, so we're increasingly interested in understanding an, an ecosystem that has begun to change very, very rapidly. Um, the Arctic Council, uh, as we've heard, has agreed to pursue ecosystem management, ecosystem-based management on an international basis. That's a worthy objective, uh, but we must recognize that ecosystem-based management uh, is challenging in the simplest and most stable of ecosystems. In the Arctic Ocean, the ecosystem is very much a moving target. It's a new ocean. 
I mentioned some of the, the research infrastructure, both traditional uh, and modern, that facilitates Arctic research. The good news is that we have tremendous technology for observing ecosystem functions remotely and more directly. Unfortunately, we are falling behind in maintaining and replacing key elements of that infrastructure, such as the Joint uh, Polar Satellite System and our icebreaker fleet. Our ability to study ecosystems is and will be adversely affected. Well, I don't think we can afford to, uh, to fiddle while the Arctic melts. Uh, we need to kind of orchestrate this whole uh, operation. And I think um, the Arctic Council's uh, new vigor is, is very welcome and very important and very timely. Uh, domestically, um, the uh, Arctic Policy Group, the Interagency Arctic Research Policy Committee, and the Arctic Region Interagency Policy uh, Committee are, are all uh, making good strides. And I think we're making some good progress on um, sorting out some of the overlapping duties uh, ascribed to these different entities. Um, the uh, the IARPIC, the uh, Interagency Arctic Research Policy Committee, has been reinvigorated uh, by uh, a presidential directive to move it under the National Science and Technology Council uh, and also by investments in NSF and personnel. Uh, and I think that's going to uh, serve us well. And in fact, the IARPIC is, is working as we speak on a, uh, a new five-year plan of interagency coordinated research. Um, and I'll leave it there. Do you want me to take questions now or later? Okay. Thanks very much. I realize I neglect to introduce myself. I'm Steve Muffson from the Washington Post, small local newspaper. Um, our next speaker is Bill Eichbaum. He's Vice President of Marine and Arctic Policy at the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, he's worked at the World Wildlife Fund for quite some time and uh, looking forward to hearing his views on uh, development up in the Arctic. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm uh, delighted to be here this afternoon uh, at this meeting. Um, we've had the privilege from WWF of working with CSIS over uh, the uh, first half of this year uh, to put on a series of uh, afternoon seminars exploring uh, the issues of the Arctic uh, beyond uh, but including oil and gas, and particularly uh, in an effort to uh, tease out the foreign policy dimensions uh, of those issues as uh, the State Department and Secretary Clinton uh, were looking to go to uh, the ministerial meeting in Nook, uh, Greenland, uh, this past May. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad to continue uh, that, that relationship uh, uh, with CSIS this afternoon. Um, I should just say a word, first of all, about WWF and the Arctic. Uh, we've been uh, in the Arctic uh, for uh, virtually the entire uh, 50 years of our history. Uh, we're the only uh, international environmental organization uh, with uh, offices uh, in every uh, Arctic uh, country uh, except for uh, Iceland. And we have had for the last five years uh, a fairly uh, tightly integrated conservation program uh, 
among those offices uh, managed uh, by a overarching Arctic program currently run uh, out, of, out of Ottawa. I should say uh, at the start that uh, our view uh, right now on oil and gas development, particularly in the marine environment of the Arctic, is that uh, society is not in a position for that to go forward uh, aggressively uh, uh, under current conditions. And I'll come, for, come, come to several of the reasons for that as I uh, share my remarks with you. Um, the uh, fundamental question uh, that we see uh, has to do in, in one way uh, with, uh, with a comment that Senator Murkowski uh, uh, made this morning in her uh, opening remarks. And she said there, and this is a quote, can be no mistakes. And the challenge that I think we're all confronted with is whether or not that is a realistic expectation for oil and gas development in the Arctic. Or rather, are we as a society faced with the challenge of managing the risk of mistakes as effectively as we possibly can? And those are two very different choices and pathways for society to go down. And I must say, as I've been sitting here all day thinking about that choice and those pathways, um, I, I've a little bit had in mind the, the fable of uh, the, the emperor without any clothes. Um, we, we certainly have a very big emperor, and that's oil and gas potential uh, in the Arctic. But whether or not society has got the clothes on that emperor to manage the risk about uh, developing uh, those resources seems to me uh, the, the, the complex and difficult question. And I'm not sure we've grappled with it um, as, as deeply and as pointedly uh, as we might have, although I thought that Fran Ulmer and her very uh, eloquent and straightforward remarks certainly pointed up uh, some of the, the key issues. But I'd like to raise, at least from the perspective of WWF, uh, some of the, the crucial elements that we need to think deeper about in the risk management process uh, as we decide as societies where and when and how to go forth for oil and gas development in the Arctic. The first of these is, is something that's been alluded to, but it has not really been identified or specifically addressed, and that is the response gap towards being able to deal with a spill or a blowout or other event if that should occur. The response gap is a, a relatively straightforward concept. Uh, it's a, discussed in the Riley Commission uh, report. It's also been discussed in a paper prepared uh, by uh, technical experts for WWF, first in uh, 2007, and then also by the Pew Charitable Trust uh, last year. But the idea of the response gap is, independent of capacity, 
and independent of the nature of the event, that the environmental conditions of the Arctic are such that they impose constraints that make it physically impossible to respond to a spill. The weather, the darkness, the ice, the wind. You've heard them all alluded to in the course of the day. But they actually add up to a real physical fact, which is if there is a spill, nothing can be done about it. And that's actually been quantified uh, in Prince William Sound. And in the summertime, the response gap is such that depending on how you try to respond, uh, somewhere between 15 and 50% of the time, the technology you try to deploy cannot be used. That's in Prince William Sound in the south of Alaska. Uh, we are now talking about uh, oil and gas development in the Chukchi and Beaufort in the north where conditions are uh, even harsher than they are uh, in Prince William Sound. We don't know what the response gap is uh, in the Beaufort or Chukchi Seas. At least it has not been quantified in any public material that's been made available in the process concerned with the current applications for permits to explore. So the response gap is a real, quantifiable impediment to dealing with a blowout that we need to know more about before we move forward in the Beaufort Sea. The second thing that I want to identify as a major issue is the uh, basic lack of capacity uh, to respond to a major spill uh, in uh, the Beaufort or Chukchi Sea. Uh, we all know the numbers, so I'm not going to dwell on them, but uh, the thousands of people that responded in the Gulf would find it hard to find a place to get a bed in the 274 hotel rooms that exist uh, in Dead Horse. Uh, there's, that, that's one simple example um, that can be multiplied many, many times. And this is if there is an accident of any significance. The capacity, whether it's ships, whether it's food, whether it's logistics, whether it's transport, simply do not exist uh, in the high uh, uh, marine Arctic environment of the Beaufort and the Chukchi Seas. So that's another element of where we don't, there's a major gap in the capacity. And the third major gap, and I have a colleague from the Coast Guard, and I'm not going to say a word about it, except that the nearest Coast Guard capacity, I think, is uh, uh, about 1,200 miles away. So w whether the Coast Guard would be able to respond as required and expected by the American people, which has also been alluded to, uh, seems uh, to be um, uh, unlikely. I think the final point is to consider what is the nature of uh, the event that we might have to respond to uh, as companies, as governments, as a society. And this is something that we really don't know. Uh, our colleague from Norway had some numbers which suggested that the Norwegian government's planning uh, accident is about half the size of the Macondo accident. That's what they plan for in their portion of uh, 
the North Sea. Uh, the uh, barrels per day that have been estimated in various publications and permit applications by Shell under its current uh, process range from or have over the last year, this is just over the last year, have ranged from less than 1,000 barrels a day uh, to as much perhaps as uh, 16,000 barrels a day, uh, which uh, Pete Slaby was the number he used at lunch um, about three months ago when they filed their new permit application. I don't know which is the right number. I have no idea. Um, I, I don't know whether Shell knows what the right number is or whether the Department of the Interior knows what the right number is. But I'm pretty persuaded that there ought to be um, a, a clear understanding before permits are issued of what the worst case scenario is that the planning has to be designed around. So again, this gap in information, it seems to me, uh, about what we even will have to consider if there's a uh, blowout or a spill of some nature is very, is very critical. So that's a, in some dimension how I see and WWF sees the problem. Um, the question then becomes, is there any responsible way to get out of that problem? Um, or do we just say we're going to be like the emperor with no clothes, we'll pretend we have clothes, and we'll hope it all works out. Um, I'm not sure that that's the only choice that we have, although I feel and fear that that is to some degree uh, the pathway that we're on. But I think that um, we can do at least a few things that may help us understand the nature of the risk we are running put boundaries around that risk, and then decide as a society whether we want to run the risk. And uh, the first of those is to deal with those gaps, at least as far as we possibly can, that I've identified. Understand and make explicit what the response gap is. Decide what the size of the spill that needs to be planned for might really be. And then understand what would be the capacities of material resources, et cetera, which would need to be in place in order to uh, uh, deal with that uh, worst case accident. Um, then I think, and this goes to a question that I think Brooks posed to uh, Fran Ulmer uh, a, a moment ago, which is the role of planning um, in all of this. We actually can, if we were to do uh, careful planning in the marine environment of the Arctic, understand uh, more about what the nature of an accident would be in a particular place, what the likely consequences of that accident would be, and whether or not the resources and understanding that we had deployed could be able to be effective, what the risk would be, and we could make decisions about places where we as a society were willing to run that risk, and I, representing an environmental 
organization might have a much different view of that than would perhaps uh, the lieutenant governor of Alaska, but that's what society is all about, is that debate, so that's not a bad thing. Um, but we could at least then make a rational decision, and we might decide there's some places where we can't respond, the values are so high, we don't want to go there at all. Um, so I would suggest, I would argue that uh, we as a society need to grapple with the planning process aggressively, science-based, inclusive of the interests of, or across the region, and move forward. The president has set the stage for this with his national ocean policy, and I think we have a real opportunity uh, to assure that we uh, move forward uh, more successfully if we put all these elements together. I want to say one final word, and I know I'm supposed to sit down, and that has to do with the role of the Arctic Council. Uh, there are many in this room who have worked hard on the Arctic Council issues for years, and I think we all feel a strong sense of optimism about the, what I would say, shift that occurred at Nook. And certainly our government uh, gets a lot of credit for having uh, instigated and pushed for the areas whether it's oil and gas, whether it's ecosystem-based planning. But the real test now is going to be, will the council do tough work and will the governments implement the product from that work, which historically has not been the case. That will be an important test also of whether the international responsibilities are met. Thank you very much. Thank you. So our, our last speaker is uh, Paul, uh, Rear Admiral Paul Zunkunf, pardon me, um, <laughs> who uh, many of you may have remembered from last uh, summer's oil spill. He was uh, very involved and uh, involved as one of the Coast Guard's um, um, public uh, speakers on it. Of course, very different conditions in the Arctic, so look forward to hearing to what you have to say about that. Thank you, Steve. And, and I'll try not to repeat what the other speakers and what you've heard before, uh, but this time last year I was the federal on-scene coordinator for Deepwater Horizon, where I had 47,000 responders, 10,500 vessels, 6,000 underway at any given time. Uh, we had three drill ships. We had two uh, of the very few uh, dynamically positioned production vessels uh, on scene as well. Uh, and I was also playing to reality TV. Um, and so one thing what you don't have in the Arctic is you don't have bandwidth. Uh, you have significant challenges just in communicating. Uh, you don't have that same bandwidth. Uh, we don't have that same situational awareness as with satellite coverage uh, in the Arctic as, as we do in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and, and I say that because we, with, despite all of the great planning you do, uh, as we saw during Deepwater Horizon, uh, you know, with the first shot of any battle, the plan pretty much goes to the wayside. Uh, we had thrown everything at that response, and when the president came down and said triple everything, uh, we pretty much stripped every resource that we had. Uh, our, our buoy tender in Cordova, Alaska, uh, that has the Voss gear, that has the wherewithal to respond in that environment, uh, within 24 hours, they were dispatched to the Gulf of Mexico. 
the same with the cutters in Hawaii. So we pretty much pulled everything that we had uh, and we centralized that in the Gulf of Mexico. So the risk that we took uh, was that our flank was very much exposed. And then as we reached out to other states, uh, as we looked at there within their OSRO organization, what can you provide? Uh, they were very reluctant to take on that potential uh, vulnerability should they have a spill in their backyard. Uh, the good news is we had multiple offers of international assistance, and Norway was a key contributor to that. And so I am encouraged that we would not go it alone should we have an event in the Arctic. But you've already heard the 274 beds in, um, in Dead Horse. Um, there are even fewer in Barrow, by the way. Um, yeah, we have two polar icebreakers, neither one of which are operational. Uh, so our ability to provide any sustained persistent presence right now is limited to one medium icebreaker. Uh, the Healy, which right now is doing a combined mapping operation with Canada as we look at the outer extent of our continental shelf. Uh, but another challenge we have as the United States is we're not signatory to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, unlike our seven other Arctic Council members. Uh, I was the, the co-chair for the Arctic Council where we signed the search and rescue agreement, so I've been able to work Arctic there. And then I'm also the DHS representative to the National Ocean Policy. Uh, and we will be chairing the, uh, the, the Arctic region with our 17th Coast Guard District uh, in Juneau, Alaska. So a lot of this hits pretty darn close to home for me. Um, but let me just go back to, uh, to Deepwater Horizon. In, in the words that Francis Ulmer made, was synthesizing information. Um, at the end of the day, as we're looking at what was the impact of the dispersants, uh, the, the sludge that's moving all over the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, what is the impact to fisheries? First of all, uh, our national contingency plan does not address community health, nor does it address seafood safety. Um, so we had to do it on the fly. Um, so we stood up the largest oceanographic monitoring effort ever conducted at one time in the Gulf of Mexico because I didn't have the science uh, at my immediate disposal to say here's the impact 5,000 feet below the surface uh, and then how does it affect everything from my microbial degradation of hydrocarbon, uh, very difficult to model but we're in close proximity to the Mississippi River. Well we don't have all of those, you know, those aspects working for us in the Arctic. You know, what is microbial decay? Because we don't have the steady influx, the natural seeps like we have uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. So I look at comparing and contrasting, you know, what we know, and more importantly, going into our planning effort, what is it that we don't know, and then how do we close those gaps? But more importantly is, how do we get whole of science and build that consensus? Uh, I work daily with Dr. Lachenko and with NOAA, uh, of how do we, we did a number of outreach efforts uh, with the universities across the Gulf of Mexico, um, but there was always that independent research out there populating a blog that would refute everything that we said, and then that would then resonate, resonate with the local communities. Um, and so there was this public distrust that don't trust anything that the feds are saying. Um, so it reached a point where only Admiral Allen and I were allowed to speak about the federal response in the Gulf of Mexico, just to try to tamper down some of the mis public mistrust. But those are some of the realities that we will deal with should we have a contingency in the Arctic, uh, and then we'll come back to why didn't we do more research. Uh, our research uh, under ICAPAR uh, had drawn down from at one point $20 million to $500,000 a year. Uh, we became complacent uh, with double-hulled vessels, 
blowout preventers deemed as a fail-safe uh, device. Uh, we would never, we, we even had a spill of national significance exercise in the early 90s, I believe it was 96, that was very similar to Macondo 252, um, but it wouldn't happen on our watch. Well, well it did. Um, and so now what, we do, what do we do in the Arctic? So uh, an opportunity that I see going forward is to do our next spill of national significance exercise and focus on the Arctic. Uh, what is it that industry brings to bear? As we look at the very federal aspect of the National Contingency Plan, it's very different from the Stafford Act, uh, which is really driven from the bottom up. Uh, under the National Contingency Plan and under Oil Pollution Act of 1990, very top-down driven, uh, but we don't have dynamically positioned vessels in the Coast Guard. Uh, we don't have remotely operated vehicles. Uh, we don't have the latest technology, and we work very closely with Beamer on um, containment systems, but that technology really is resident within the industry itself. Uh, what I will say, and I was over in Houston a number of times during the spill, I think Admiral Allen, Steve Chu, uh, Secretary Salazar, a number of others, um, were, were working with industry, uh, but it was federal government, and it wasn't just BP, it was Exxon, uh, Exxon Mobil, Shell, and others, because as, as, as we're into day 87, uh, of a flow rate that we still couldn't quite get our, our grip on. Uh, we started with 5,000, then it was 10,000, 15, 20, 25, and I think we finally capped out at 50,000. Uh, one thing I will say is, is, is don't, don't hold yourself to a number. Hold yourself to a range uh, because, you know, numbers will sink you at the end of the day, and, and it really comes down to public trust. Uh, but we did respond to Macondo 252 with everything we had, and we would look at the same as we, you know, we've seen numbers as high as 25,000 worst-case discharge rates uh, for, for the Arctic for, for the leases that are being entertained right now. Uh, so we need to, you know, what is available? You know, the, the responders that came down to the Gulf of Mexico, you know, I think the furthest north they came was from Boston. Uh, when, I, when I looked at Brendan's slide of you know, I don't think those folks are trained or equipped to operate in the Arctic environment. So um, our OSRO community, our oil spill response organizations, uh, we do have three in the state of Alaska that do have the capacity to respond in that environment. But you have to remember, whenever the seas are over four feet or the winds are over 25 knots, which means eh, on most days, um, you know, you can't burn, uh, you can't skim, and dispersants, largely ineffective in an ice environment because you don't get that, that interface uh, action uh, that you would get like we had in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, nor do we have pre-approvals to use dispersants or to uh, conduct in situ burning uh, because of the, the carbon footprint that that would leave as well. So as we talk about environmental challenges in the Arctic, uh, they are significant. You've heard about what the capacity issues are. Uh, but it really starts with that foundational knowledge of, of what is it that we don't know, how do we close those gaps, and that is, uh, I expect we have at least one or two Shell representatives here. As they go through that NEPA process, you know, those are some of the key gaps that, that they need to close. Uh, but we're also, what did we learn from Macondo 52? Uh, when we looked at the Deepwater Horizon rig, their oil spill contingency plan, they carry a million gallons of fuel. And so that was their oil spill contingency plan, not the 300 million barrel reservoir that they sit over. Uh, so we have learned a lot, and so we have since closed that, that gaping hole that we had in our planning considerations. And there are actually platforms out in the Gulf of Mexico that have worst-case discharge rates in excess of 400,000 
barrels per day. Um, so again, uh, we closed that back gap pretty darn quick, but the challenges still, still exist, and we're, we're from where I sit, it really does come down to a knowledge gap as we, as we go forward. So what I'd like to do is open it up to questions, but I, I just speak to you from having been there, done that, and yes, I even have a t-shirt or two, uh, and we look forward to hearing your questions. Um, well, I think the best thing is to open up to questions from the floor right away. And so, um, jump right in. Yes. Uh, Robert Schroeder again, International Investor. Um, since we're talking about an information gap, each one of you seemed to touch on it. What don't we know about what was happening be even before Macondo? And, and uh, what I'm referring to is we know the Gulf was already having troubles on the ocean floor. There was a dead zone. How many spills might have been taking place? Maybe they were minor spills. Maybe they were, uh, you know, things that happen in normal operations. But how many things might have been going on before our regulators really took a good hard look at that area? And I'm trying to transfer that to the problems that you're each outlining for Alaska and the Arctic. I'm thinking to myself, gee, if the regulators weren't prowling around the nice warm Caribbean waters looking for trouble. How many of them can we expect to be enduring the frigid temperatures and conditions up there in order to keep this drill, these drilling operations in line? Really, if there was, if there was minor or even semi-issues and spills, back to this gentleman's question, I guess he's going about the auditing process, how do we know what uh, – I'm going to throw one more tiny part of this. After all is said and done, what were the penalties involved in the Macondo deal? Who went to jail? Who lost their jobs? How big were the fines? I understand, uh, sure, BP ended up, uh, I understand, out of $5 billion now, out of the $20 billion fund has been paid. But my real question is, is there enough tough regulatory oversight? Let me – jump on that one first. And, and first of all, I would look at, there, there's some similarities. Uh, when we look at the loss, um, accelerated loss of wetlands in the Gulf Coast, not attributed to Macondo 252, um, a lot of it, the levee systems, um, you know, the nutrients that wash out of the Mississippi, you know, what is the um, accumulative effect of that? Um, and then compare that to the loss of ice, the loss of snow, the, the re refractive uh, properties of that, uh, the rise in seawater temperatures. We obviously see that in the Gulf of Mexico, loss of corals. So you have change happening within a change cycle. Um, and, and now you have another change agent, in this case, a bona fide catalyst that's taking, taking place. Uh, so what, what I felt like I lacked was what is this element of change, this catalyst, you know, how much of it is attributed to an oil spill, and then how much of this has been occurring over a period of time where now it, it's all come to a, uh, a convergence of we have a spill and we've neglected the, the loss of wetlands for, for more than 50 years now. Um, so I think you can look at those very same challenge in terms of gaps, but, but what is changing, and then what, what, what is the differential um, that was attributed to this? Um, I will say that, uh, you know, there's about $5 billion in claims to BP. Uh, the Clean Water Act violation has not been adjudicated. 
um, and part of those penalty dollars will go to the Gulf Coast Restoration Task Force to look at restoration of wetlands. Um, but just with, as you start adding up all the response costs, uh, it's now closing in on $40 billion. Uh, and so when you look at a cost of, of that amount, um, there are smaller drilling companies in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, Rowan is one of them. Um, I don't think Rowan has a, a $40 billion capital base uh, to respond to a spill of that, that magnitude. Um, and then so then where do you go to? Uh, to address those very same challenges. Um, you know, they always say, well, put the feds in charge. Uh, you know, we're dealing with a $14.3 trillion deficit. Um, and so those are some very real challenges of, of who operates uh, and then who incurs that, that liability to operate in very high-risk environments. What you do see among the tens of thousands of wells in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, when I was called that night, um, my expectation was in it, it was going to be in a couple of hundred feet of water when they said 5,000 feet. Um, well, that's the new frontier now. You know, that is where the reserves are as they're moving out to the far frontiers, uh, deep water in the Gulf of Mexico, and now the next frontier being the Arctic. But that's where our reserves are. Uh, we've, we've taken the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and so as we reach out beyond our borders, we take on certainly a higher level of risk. Um, and not just environmentally, but certainly from a financial standpoint as well. Paul, maybe I can just add another question. I mean, we've talked about the things that make, or anyone else, the things that make the uh, situation potentially worse in the Arctic, the dark, the cold, um, the wind, the lack of microbes. But what about, is there anything that makes it easier, the water depth, the, I mean, anything? Maybe there isn't anything else, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, I thought also that the water depth puts the, uh, is the BOP on the rig deck at, at these water depths? Yeah. Uh, hydrates were a real problem at 5,000 feet. Um, so I think just dealing with the hydrates and con containment systems, um, you know, you would not have that dealing with when you're working in a, in a shallow water environment. The fact is we look at before you even go into these environments that you already have that containment system in place. Uh, the capping stack that was placed over the Macondo 252 well on day 87 um, did not exist on April 20th of 2010. Uh, a phenomenal piece of engineering took place to the credit of BP to, to fabricate that, to put it in place, um, but that really needs to be readily available. So as we look at these, you know, as we push that risk envelope even further out, but even then, uh, they had to operate within very tight weather constraints to be able to position vessels and put that in place. And so the weather certainly gets a vote in this as well. Um, and so that would be a challenge as we look at containment systems, even if readily available. Uh, we're still dealing with weather, and we're dealing with, as, as I would compare this to a very pristine environment. Um, you know, the Gulf of Mexico normally consumes about 2 million um, over 2 million gallons a year in natural seepage and has been doing this for, for a millennium or if not longer. So you don't have that baseline in the Arctic as well, at least not to my knowledge. So those are some of the nuances, but weather uh, clearly being the, the real game changer up there. Just make two points quickly. Uh, one is uh, the, this, the shallow water is hoped to be uh, a positive thing. I would point out that the, uh, the last major spill, which was uh, on the northwest coast of Australia two years ago, 
think was in about 170 feet of water and took uh, 70 days for the Australians to get uh, under control. So shallow water doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. Um, I would also point out that uh, the capping system that's proposed for these exploration wells has not been tested. I think it's being built as we speak for potential use next summer. So again, do we go do this with technology that's not tested? I'd also just like to, your point about the cumulative impacts, that uh, the Macondo was just sort of the, the last event in a long history, not all of it attributable to the oil industry. I think this is one of the reasons why we need to think about careful planning of how we proceed in the Arctic, both terrestrial and in the marine environment. As uh, the Lieutenant Governor pointed out, Alaska has tremendous resources. They're going to get used. Um, I don't think that's the issue. Uh, the issue is can we do it in a way maybe smarter than we've done it in a lot of uh, the rest of this country uh, so that we preserve and protect uh, that great pristine environment uh, that's also in Alaska. That, that's the, the, the central ground point, it seems to me, for thinking and planning to get this right. Another question? <laughs> Everyone's exhausted. Um, well, um, I guess uh, my question, maybe ask another question to, to Paul, which is that, I mean, do you think that this area can be drilled in a reasonably, in, you know, assuming reasonable risks? I mean, I guess we're accepting that there are risks. What is your, your view in that based on your experience? Yeah. Um, again, to, uh, to, to at a minimum, at least run a tabletop exercise uh, that brings in all elements of the regional response team, uh, the national response team, you know, a whole of government approach first, uh, because those are the folks that you're going to be working with. Uh, what we ended up establishing during the uh, Deepwater Horizon, it, it ended up turning to be an interagency solution group. Um, led almost at the cabinet level uh, in, in many cases. Uh, but we ran a spill of national significance exercise um, in March of 2010, less than a month before this event occurred. Uh, and, and it was viewed as a tier two, tier three exercise. And, and it's a, we've, we've exercised this enough. We don't, there, there was a very great lack of interest. Shell was the sponsor um, in, um, but the truth of the matter is we really need to read what I would call in, in military terms red cell, you know, what can go wrong, um, and at least at a minimum do that before 2012-13, before Shell uh, looks at moving forward with this event. So uh, I, I am an advocate of our next spill of national significance exercise that we focus on the Arctic, um, and then we also focus internationally as well. And maybe this is a good way to close, just by asking each of you to answer the same question. Is there anything that uh, would make you feel completely comfortable with drilling in the Chukchi or, or the Beaufort, or do you feel that that's an inherently more risk than, than you think is worth the, the benefits? Bill? Well, given the factors that I mentioned, uh, I think it's inherently more risky than it's worth the benefit. Whether with adequate planning, uh, with adequate resources, and with uh, adequate protection of, of, of high-value areas, those risks can be 
reduced to a level that society uh, would find acceptable, I think we don't know yet because we haven't done the work. We don't have the analysis. Brendan, you want to take a crack at that too? Yeah, it just strikes me that uh, I'll just briefly reiterate what Bill said that you know we, we, we clearly don't have uh, an ability to compare the risks to, to the benefits in any kind of meaningful way. So we we would need a, a better kind of analysis of the, what the real risk is. Any other burning questions out there? Or otherwise, we can, I think, call it a day. We've had a long day, I know. Is there, is there one more? Wait, one more? Last question. It'll be the last one. Um, you mentioned how this is a changing ocean. I'm just wondering if uh, the entire panel could speak more to the effects of climate change and what that will mean for oil and gas in the area. Um, again, it was mentioned in terms of the seals and what that will mean for them. Will there be a direct impact on oil and gas? Well, yeah. I mean, this is what I was trying to get at by saying it's a kind of a moving target. So we have, uh, for example, in work in the in the Bering Sea, seen some pretty good evidence that uh, the changing climate and the changing ice regime is is causing some very very fundamental shifts in the in the community structure of that ecosystem. Um, we don't even haven't even scratched the surface of that kind of a question uh, in in the. Arctic Ocean itself, so in the Chukchi and the Beaufort. So yeah, climate change is this, this big elephant in the room. It's changing this ecosystem and um, so rapidly, and yet we, we're, we're not even close to keeping up with, with an understanding of it. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, speaking for myself, this combination of science, economics, and politics makes it a never-endingly great story for journalists. So. Look forward to the next chapter.